From the Political Science Department at UW-Madison, I'm Adam Wigger. I'm Mia Wagner. And I'm Michael Mikowski. In this podcast series, we will speak with UW-Madison faculty members and other experts to hear their thoughts on the COVID-19 pandemic, as well as the political and global changes that the situation has warranted. This is 1050 Bascom, COVID-19. Today on 1050 Bascom, we are excited to welcome back Professor Barry Burden. Professor Burden has been instrumental in our election 2020 series. In January, Professor Burden joined us for a preview of the presidential primary, a race quite different from the contest we're looking at today. In any event, before the semester officially ends, we also wanted to talk to Professor Burden one more time about the state of politics in our uncertain, stressful, and unpredictable COVID-19 world. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast again this final week of the semester. Uh, Thanks for having me back. We can just jump right into the questions. So about Tara Reid and the sexual assault allegations against Biden, are you making the media coverage so far, especially in comparison to what we might see without a global pandemic? Oh, I think the coverage would be different if the pandemic was not happening. It, you know, the coronavirus and the, the public health concerns, the economic fallout from it are just so dominating the headlines. Uh, if you tune into one of the cable news networks, it's all they're covering. It's the top headline on the New York Times front page every day. And it just doesn't leave much space for any other kinds of stories, whether they're campaign related around the Tara Reid allegation, or it's what's happening in the administration that's not related to coronavirus. Um, it, coronavirus has really become everything. So you know, it's it's been relegated, I think, to a page five or page six story in the old days of newspapers and has really struggled to get the kind of attention it would normally receive. Yeah. Why do you think that is? Well, I, th- I think rightly the coronavirus is the number one story for sure. It's a <laughs> worldwide experience. We're all having uh, unprecedented, um, bigger than the campaign. Right? This is about people's daily lives, their health, their livelihood. Uh, so it's, it's hard to look away from that story. And it has so many aspects. You know, there's a scientific aspect to it about developing a vaccine and what the antibodies mean. There's a kind of a political power aspect to it, the relationship between the federal government and the state governments and mayors and protests that are happening about opening up some states. There's the economic fallout and uh, how people are managing that. So there's just so many things for journalists to cover. I, I talked to a reporter at the Times a couple weeks ago, and he said it was a great time to be a journalist. They were, they had so much important news that really required investigation and reporting out that that was the one silver lining in all of this. And so, you know, I, I've seen reporters pulled off of the campaign trail uh, to, you know, be repurposed to cover these kinds of stories. So um, whether it's Tara Reid or any, really any other aspect of the presidential campaigns, they, they are minor issues at the moment. Yeah, I think it's um, frustrating for some to see that sort of issue be pushed to the side. And something that I've seen in the news as well is how coverage of the Tara Reid story is starting to take a partisan nature, perhaps. Um, Even in the Democratic Party, looking at elites who in the past have demanded more full investigations, for example, into uh, Christine Blasey Ford's allegation against uh, 
now Justice Brett Kavanaugh, you can kind of see the party in the media navigating how to handle this allegation. So what do you make or how do you make sense of these this partisan lens that the allegation is taking? And do you think it's fair to say that some of the Democratic elites may be too quick to push these allegations aside? Well, I do think both parties have different tensions about how they handle this. Uh, for the Republicans, take them first, if they were to go aggressively after Biden and accuse him of wrongdoing and, and try to hold up Tara Reid and provide more corroboration for that, that would seem to undercut their support of Donald Trump, who's been accused of much more over the past few years and I think has more support, some of it ag acknowledged by him even. For Democrats, I think the tension is different because they have been so supportive of women who have come forward during the Me Too movement especially and have ousted some of their own, uh, including former Senator Al Franken from Minnesota. So t to not be supportive of Reid at this point would seem contradictory or hypocritical. Uh, but it looks like from the early polling, at least, for people who are aware of the story at all, they seem to be breaking down along partisan lines to at least some degree. Not fully, but Democrats are a little more skeptical of the story. And even if they believe it, they think it's not an important story. Republicans are more likely to say they believe it in surveys and to say it's a, it's a bigger concern for them. So let's, let's think about the contrast between Joe Biden's situation and Brett Kavanaugh's. I do think they're different. There are obviously similarities that it's, it's a man in power being accused of assault and wrongdoing a couple day, decades earlier uh, in a very public way, uh, and, and at least partially corroborated by conversations that the woman had with someone uh, or multiple people along the way. But they are different in that Kavanaugh was an unknown character. Although he had been on the federal bench, he wasn't known to the American public, and he was about to be put into a position with this a lifetime appointment on the Supreme Court. And Joe Biden is different because he's been in public life for 40 years. This has been one of his talking points. People know me and I have a very long record and there's no other instance of an allegation, he says, no record of this. Uh, people can speak to his character. And so I think he's gotten more credit for his defense than Kavanaugh did. And I think rightly so, simply because of the degree to which he's been in the public spotlight. I think he, he and uh, Democrats have also refrained from going after Reid personally or questioning her motives. He's, he simply denied that it happened, says he has no memory of this. He has no record of ever, ever happening. And there have been a few others in his office working in the Senate who corroborated his view. Um, Kavanaugh you know, ended up, when he was testifying, uh, accusing people of being engaged in a witch hunt and trying to undermine Blasey Ford's credibility. So the, I think the response has been a little bit different and the knowledge that the public and fellow members of the party have of these two men is also different. So it doesn't surprise me that the response has been a little different, but as you say, the, the partisan sides have been flipped and that also tends to change people's views. You brought it up, but Biden's response in saying that it's just simply not true. Why do you think Joe Bideners people, why do you think that they aren't engaging with this in a, like a very salient, very real conversation about sexual assault in politics in the public and private sphere, especially kind of looking back at when Barack Obama was running and his long-term pastor, Jeremiah Wright, excuse me, was making quote-unquote anti-white remarks and 
Obama and his campaign took that head on with like an eloquent speech that even his critics said, like, yeah, that was a good speech. So why do you think that Joe Biden isn't tackling this in the same way? Well, I think there are a few reasons. It's a really good question. And I think there are multiple causes of what's going on. One is that Joe Biden is in his basement in Delaware and has not figured out how to be a candidate from that place. It's just, he's not good at things digital. He's not figured out how to stay relevant. And uh, he's been a, a kind of minor note in news coverage over the last few weeks. He would not want, I think, his only coverage to be about the Tara Reid allegation. So maybe he simply hopes it will go away or he's just his team has not developed the competency to deal with it. Uh, second, I think, is that they were waiting for mainstream journalists to validate the story in some way before they felt the need to respond to it. It had only come up as an allegation, I think, in a podcast interview, maybe, that uh, Tara Reid had done, but hadn't been picked up by the Washington Post or Politico or the Wall Street Journal or other outlets that have more resources to do the investigation and provide more context for the allegation. So I think they were waiting on that. And the New York Times finally came out with a piece that was sort of a mixed message. They found some, some support for her view, but also raised a lot of skepticism because they couldn't validate it with statements from other Senate staffers from the same time period. So, and, that's, it's, and I think that's still a developing story, but I think that's part of what they were waiting on. You know, the, uh, the third thing I think that's a difference from the Obama situation is that for Obama, he clearly had a long-term rela relationship with Reverend Jeremiah Wright. He had been a member of his church. I think Wright had married Barack and Michelle, and their children had come up in the church, uh, and Jeremiah Wright's on video saying the things he said. So there's, there's no denying of anything. He, he had to embrace it. And Obama was also a lesser-known public figure than Biden. So he probably felt more pressure to take a clear position, and it involved issues of race, which have been part of the American debate since the beginning of the republic. Um, and so I, I think he was sort of backed into the situation, or it just had a more compelling narrative to it. You know, the, the Tara Reid connection to Joe Biden is not clear, other than this uh, maybe brief period of time she worked in the Senate and the allegation wherever it will go. Uh, there's no video or text right now that documents it. It's not really part of Biden's identity in the same way that Obama's race and his membership in this church was. So I, so I wouldn't expect Biden to offer the same kind of response that Obama did for all of those reasons. So it's, I think it's a mixture of the different setting and the just lack of footing that the Biden campaign has at the moment. What do you think that the Biden campaign can do to get that footing, especially in this crazy time we're living in? Well, they do. I think everyone who's running for office needs to figure out how to do this without having rallies and rope lines and face-to-face -face interaction and door knocking by volunteers. Uh, the Trump campaign starts with an advantage because it has this big digital presence huge number of Twitter followers, very effective Facebook, Instagram accounts, lots of money being spent on digital ads. And Biden has never been inclined to do that. He didn't have much of that going on when he was running in the primaries early on. He was behind the other candidates in developing that stuff. He really liked the face-to-face -face events and shaking hands with people and talking with them. Uh, he didn't even really like giving the speeches. He, he liked 
after the speech was given, when there was time to chat with people along the rope line, that was where he performed best. So I, I think he's just not figured that out. And the fact that he's sequestered in his home makes it worse. You know, he can't have a his staff there with him face to face having conversations. Um, he's sort of talking to cameras and computers most of the time, like a lot of us are. <laughs> but it's a, it's a strange experience if you're a candidate for office. So he's, he's going to have to be inventive. Uh, there was just an op-ed written by two of Obama's chief advisors well, when he was running for office calling on Biden as an ally to get serious about this, to really develop a digital campaign strategy and figure it out now to avoid being behind Trump all the way through Election Day. So I think there is now a, a more pressure on him than there was at the beginning of the pandemic to try to get <laughs> get the campaign together in a non-face-to-face environment. Turning again from the, his campaign to the allegations from uh, Tara Reid and borrowing a, a phrase from Claire Malone, who writes for 538, she wrote last about, quote-unquote, the whataboutism, that Joe might have done this, but Trump did much worse. Can you speak at all to the kind of finger-pointing between these two major candidates, especially considering what the Democratic base is considering here between Joe Biden, who has these allegations against him, and President Trump? Yeah, I I think there's a real difference between leaders of the Democratic Party or the Biden campaign and average Democrats on the street. Uh, Joe Biden himself has been, I think, very careful not to fall prey to whataboutism. It would be so easy to say, hey, what about that guy, Trump? He has done these terrible things, uh, far worse, even if this allegation were true. Instead, he simply denied the allegation, said he has no memory of it, no record of it, didn't happen. Uh, and I think the other Democrats who are his allies, his you know poten- potential surrogates, potential running mates, have been saying something similar. But for rank and file Democrats, the logic might be a little different. They they do dislike Trump a lot. They, in surveys, tell us they believe the allegations against Trump. And so they're probably more willing to tolerate the story about Tara Reid if it were true and still vote for Biden. Because on the the scale where you're comparing just these two candidates, if those are your only choices, uh, it's a no-brainer for them. So, you know, they may be inclined to do a little more of that than I think Democratic leaders would do out loud. Republicans, I think, face no tension at all. Trump's strategy from the time he entered public life before he was running for office was always about pointing to the other side and saying, well, what about you? So turning the question on the person asking the question and his supporters, rank and file Republicans are really on board with that too. So I, I think it gives them a little bit of a pass not to worry so much about the allegations towards Trump because they will say Biden or whoever the opponent of the day is against Trump is just as bad or has also done terrible things. Um, they will find some other failing with the person. So it does remain a little more of a tension, I think, within the Democratic camp than the Republican camp. That might evolve over time if the Tara Reid story continues to blossom, or it might disappear if it fades and there's no additional reporting on it. Kind of the big question surrounding all of this, is there any chance he gets removed from the ticket or the Democrats seek some alternative path towards the White House? I see zero chance that Biden is removed from the ticket because of the Tara Reid allegation. Uh, even if there's additional corroboration, even if she does a big interview, 
and some other people come forward to support it, saying they have evidence that it happened. He's not going to be removed from the ticket for that. There is an outside chance he'd be removed from the ticket for other things. Uh, I think his health would be the main concern. He's, he's old. Uh, we'd be in his 80s by the end of his first term in office. We're in the midst of a pandemic where people his age are at a special risk. And I think that's the only cause that Democrats would really see as legitimate reason to remove him and replace him with someone else. Um, but I think the Tara Reid scandal is not it. So uh, we have some questions about vice presidential pick broadly, but before we get into the more broad questions about just um, what that might look like, given all of what we just talked about with the Tara Reid allegations, um, it's going to be hard for a female VP to navigate this now, given all of the concerns that we just talked about. How do you think the commitment to a female candidate for vice president plays in general and in context with these allegations? Well, I think before the allegations emerged, it softened some of the concern among rank-and-file Democrats and activists about him being the nominee. Uh, there's just so much desire in the Democratic Party to have a diverse set of leaders, and Joe Biden doesn't represent any of that diversity in terms of age, race, or gender. So you know, his commitment to pick a female running mate and his kind of hint that it might be a female person of color even, I think has helped to allay some of those concerns you hear from the base. Um, you know, the job of the running mate is partly to be kind of the axe, what we used to call the axe man, the axe person, who would really level criticism at the opposing ticket and do the hard mudslinging work of the campaign. And that would lead the nominee to be above the fray. So that person's going to take it hard to Trump and Pence. That's going to be their job and to defend Biden at every instance. So I, I think it will be a conversation that he will have with as he's vetting these potential running mates. What do they think about the Tara Reid situation? How would they handle it? Uh, in, a, in a way, they are already auditioning for this role. Uh, people like Stacey Abrams, uh, Gretchen Whitmer from Michigan, Elizabeth Warren have been doing lots of interviews. And they, of course, get asked about Tara Reid along with everything else. And so I think, you know, they're demonstrating for him their willingness to defend him and, and the kind of way they would frame the story. So it's definitely one of the factors, not the only factor, but, um, you know, that, that running mate is a kind of defender and attacker in chief. So it's got to be someone who's loyal and consistent. And, and uh, that'll be something Biden looks for, for sure. You mentioned how the VP kind of plays this role as an axe person. Um, given that Joe Biden was the vice president and did that campaign twice. Do you see like any major differences between how he's acting or how he ran, or I guess he didn't run the campaign with Obama, but how he's acted in his um, position in the campaign in this, as he's running for president versus vice president in terms of how his character comes across or the sort of rhetoric he uses? Yeah, I think he's been a little flabby as a candidate. You know, he, he hasn't run on his own since 2012. He's been in public life for so long. I think he was very confident about his skills and didn't fully prepare for the contest that he was going to face against the 20-some Democrats who were running for president against him. Mm. And was kind of shell-shocked when he failed in Iowa and New Hampshire and had trouble raising money and had trouble winning endorsements for a former vice president. Uh, I think he sort of thought that his attachment to the Obama administration would get him a lot of credit, and more than he got. 
and that it wouldn't be hard to raise money or win over Democratic voters. So any, you know, he, we saw his performance in the debates was not great, not consistent. Uh, looks to a lot of us like he's kind of me mentally missing a step from where he would have been a decade or two ago. Uh, he also has a modest speech impediment, I think, that gets in the way and sort of complicates how we view his speech patterns. But he's, he's not as sharp, I think, and um, maybe not as diligent about his preparation as some other candidates would be. I think he's probably getting the message at this point that he's going to need to step all of that up, and that may be part of what's happening in that cave in Delaware. Returning just to um, get in one question before we move on about the vice presidential pick, do you have any idea when a pick is announced, when that typically comes, in what stage of the campaign? And just for people who maybe don't know, what does that look like behind the scenes? What people are taking, what kind of action, what are sort of the um, qualities they're looking for, and or how does that process unfold? So uh, timing is pretty predictable now, at least for the past few presidential cycles. The running mate has been named uh, about four or five days before the convention starts. And I think the logic in that is that it provides a kind of jolt of energy just as the convention's about to begin. You get some positive press coverage out of that. And then there's almost an electricity in the air when the running mate finally shows up in the convention hall, appears on the stage, gives their speech. Um, Sarah Palin, you remember, had that kind of electricity when she showed up in 2008 at the RNC. Uh, Paul Ryan showed a lot of that uh, when he was there in 2012. Uh, maybe Joe Biden had a little less excitement when he was named in 2008. But that's that's been the traditional pattern right before the convention. Uh, it may be changed this year in terms of timing because the DNC got pushed back by a month. And it may be a very different event without a face-to-face -face meeting in Milwaukee at all. So if it's online, I don't know how that changes the logic, but it might. Uh, and we have this long, dull period between when the primary is basically wrapped up in March and when the convention finally happens in August. Uh, maybe Biden would like to re-inject himself into the campaign coverage by naming the running mate earlier, you know, doing it in June or July. Uh, I think that's a possibility. Uh, he has a team now that he's appointed to do the vetting of the running mate. This is also a pretty traditional way of handling things. You, you, as a candidate, you pick some hired hands that you trust, uh, that you have long-term connections to, and help. Uh, and they and they help you identify people and do the background checks that have to happen. I think he's also having a lot of conversations, just one-on-one. -on -one. He's he's running a podcast <laughs> like this one from Delaware, and he inter has interviewed Amy Klobuchar and I think Gretchen Whitmer and a bunch of other people who might be thought of as running mates. And he's watching their performance when they do interviews on. CNN or other places. So that process is definitely underway and has just gotten more formal with the appointment of this committee. You know, one of the famous cases of this that went a kind of funny direction was when George W. Bush was running for president. He put together a team of advisors to choose a running mate, and the head of that committee was former Defense Secretary, member of Congress, Dick Cheney, also a UW alum, Dick Cheney. And in the end, Cheney came back and said, how about me? <laughs> as the person and he ended up being the running mate of course so that's pretty unusual but it does suggest there's you know not a predictable path there's one thing different about the running mate choice this time typically especially on the democratic side the nominee is somebody from outside washington and what they need in a running mate is somebody who knows how washington works and has connections in the capital so when obama was nominated for example he was a brand new senator 
didn't have much of a base in D.C., so he picked Biden as somebody who had these long-term roots in the U.S. Senate. Uh, or uh, George W. Bush, Bush uh, an outsider who was a governor from Texas, picks Cheney as a running mate. Cheney was a Washington insider for many decades. Jimmy Carter picks Walter Mondale. Ronald Reagan picks George H.W. Bush. So on both sides, uh, Romney picks Paul Ryan. Um, so on both sides, you see it happening. But this time it's different because Biden is the long-term insider. <laughs> He's been in Washington for 40 years. And I think he will be looking to somebody who's obviously female, younger, different, and, and not of Washington. Uh, research shows that it actually doesn't help you much in winning the state that the running mate comes from. That's what the media chatter is about. You know, what if Gretchen Whitmer were selected? Would she help the Democrats win Michigan? Not really. <laughs> most, most studies show that the effect is about zero. It, it, it would energize Democrats in Michigan to have their governor on the ticket, but it would also energize Republicans who right now are, are a little supportive of Whitmer, but they would turn on her when it became a partisan contest. That's what, it, that's what happened when Paul Ryan was the running mate for Mitt Romney. You might think that would help him win Wisconsin. It did not. Well, Romney lost to Wisconsin, but didn't do really any better, even in Ryan's district, than previous Republicans had done, because some Democrats who thought Ryan was maybe okay before he was on the ticket did not view him as okay when it was him against the Republican, uh, the Democratic slate. So home state effects, not very helpful. I think it does help the running, it does help the ticket reach out to some core constituencies that are not well represented by the head of the ticket or where the head of the ticket doesn't have deep connections. So um, you could imagine if Tammy Baldwin, for example, got picked as the running mate, uh, she's an openly lesbian member of the U.S. Senate, very connected to the BGLT community. So it might help the Democratic campaign generate more excitement in that group not just as voters, they're going to be overwhelmingly Democratic voters, but also help extract money and volunteer time from that group. So there are those kinds of things. I think the, 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 the two main concerns are, does the running mate hurt you in any way? Are they embarrassing? Or do they create situations that derail you from the campaign you'd like to run? And occasionally there are situations like that. Uh, so you want to vet them for sure to make sure that doesn't happen. And then as Biden has said, and I think every nominee has said, is this somebody that you could work with? And you could imagine being your partner in Washington, and you could imagine being president of the United States if you were to step aside. And I think that latter question is more important for Biden because of his age. He has talked about being a transitional candidate from some prior period to some new period. Those aren't well-defined, but he wants to transition to a different kind of politics. And that makes it sound like he's going to hand off the office after four years. So who that running mate is, I think, becomes more important in thinking about them as a potential president in just four years rather than eight. Moving from the vice presidency um, to just the race, state of the race in general, where are we in the polls? Uh, where's public opinion at? Well, we are seeing a lot of polling, uh, even about the presidential race. Uh, Biden is ahead in essentially every national poll. He's running five to six points ahead of Trump in head-to-head -head races. Uh, that softened maybe just a little bit if you throw in the potential third party, minor party candidacy of Justin Amash. But setting that aside for the moment, uh, Biden looks like he's well ahead. Uh, but of course, the national popular vote doesn't choose the president. And Hillary Clinton was also ahead during most of the 2016 campaign and did win more votes 
on election day uh, by about two and a half percentage points, I think, nationwide. So does not guarantee a victory in the Electoral College. Um, but surveys are showing that people have a more favorable view of Biden as a person, as a public figure, than they do of Trump, for sure, but even more favorable than they had towards Clinton four years ago. Uh, you may remember four years ago, Clinton and Trump got talked about as the two least liked nominees to ever run for office. And in the era of surveys, at least, that seemed to be true. Both of them were underwater with more people saying they disliked them than liked them. And those people who disliked both of them ended up voting for Trump disproportionately. Uh, now there are fewer people who dislike both. And the ones who are saying that are actually on Biden's side by a margin of like 60-40 at least in these early polls. So that's where things are today. Biden would love to have the election today, I think. But <laughs> there's a, a lot to happen between now and then with running mates conventions and Biden coming above ground at some point. So um, it may not look this way by election day. Just to follow up on Justin Amash, so that is the previous Republican, now independent congressman from Michigan. Do you think his campaign will have any impact? I've seen some things in the media sort of comparing his um, libertarian bid for presidency to, I believe it was, uh, I've seen the comparisons to Ralph Nader. So what kind of things or what sort of effect do you think him joining the race could or will have? Well, first of all, he's running as a libertarian and the libertarians are very good at getting on the ballot. They are typically on the ballot in all 50 states. So that problem is mostly going to be solved for him. And that's a huge hurdle for a minor party candidate. You might think because he's a libertarian and a conservative, he's pro-life and uh, resistant to the government and wants to lower taxes and a lot of the things libertarians are for, that that might appeal to conservative Republicans especially, and that might pull some support for Trump. So you might think it would help Biden. I am not so sure about that. Um, you know, I think the Republican Party has changed under Trump. It doesn't have its same libertarian roots that it would have had, say, during the Reagan era. And um, he's pro-life, so is Trump. <laughs> pro-life is not typically the libertarian position if you want less government involvement. So there's, it's a little complicated for Amash on that dimension. Also, research shows that the best predictor of whether a group will vote for a third-party candidate is age. Young people are the ones who vote for minor parties. That was true with Gary Johnson and Jill Stein four years ago. It was true with Ross Perot. It was true with Ralph Nader. Young people are just much more interested in these non-major party options. They, they're less wedded to the two major parties. So if that's the case, if young people are disproportionately attracted to Amash, that hurts Biden because what Democrats need is good, strong turnout from young people who are one of their more dedicated bases and He's trying to consolidate all of the young support that had gone to Sanders in the primaries. So to have to fight on another front uh, against an Amash, I think, is a problem. Um, the other thing research shows is that third parties tend to draw support from people who are unhappy with the current administration and the current status quo. So these would be people who are not happy with Trump or not happy with Washington. I think otherwise they would mostly go to Biden. So if Amash steals some of them, that also hurts Biden a little bit. And uh, there's just a poll out today from Monmouth University that did a two-way head-to-head race between Trump and Biden, then a three-way where Amash is included. And when Amash is included, the margin between Trump and Biden does shrink. So it, it hurts Biden 
more than Trump, which, which I think is consistent with how I was thinking about it. Um, you know, Amash, I think, is an unknown character to most of the public. We're going to learn about him if he stays on to run the, the campaign all the way to Election Day. You know, that, that will change views of him as people form opinions. Um, he is from Michigan, which is a swing state, and Biden needs to win. So uh, that may hurt him a little there. Third parties tend to do a little bit better in their home states. So I, I think in the end, it's more of a challenge for Biden than for Trump. But uh, we'll just have to see if Amash sticks it out and, um, and, and how opinions of him come to look as the election gets closer. Thank you for uh, sharing your insight there. Um, when we're thinking about these polls, how accurate are they going into the summer, especially historically, in predicting final polls on election day? Historically, they've been terrible. At this time, in April or May of an election year, they've had very little predictive ability for the general election. Uh, some, partly that's true because usually the primaries are still kind of ongoing, and I, I guess the Democratic primary is sort of ongoing, even though everyone else has suspended their campaigns. Uh, Biden is not exactly the nominee yet. So that's, that's one reason why they predict poorly. But also, you know, I think opinions of the out-party candidate haven't fully formed in the spring. Uh, as I mentioned before, there's no running mate yet. We don't have a platform. Kind of the, the image that Democrats want to project coming out of their convention is yet to be decided. Uh, so historically, it's predicted poorly. That said, the last two or three presidential election cycles, the polls have gotten better and better at predicting the outcome as early as the spring. Uh, the main reason for that seems to be polarization or, or stronger partisanship. People are locked into their opinions earlier, almost regardless of who the nominees are. There are surveys now asking people uh, if they've made up their mind or when they're likely to make up their minds. And I, th I think at least one of them showed about two-thirds of the public said they already knew who they were voting for. So, you know, who, who Biden picks as a running mate, how Tara Reid allegations play out, or even how the coronavirus uh, plays out won't matter for a lot of voters. So it's a, you know, it's a small group, I think, that's persuadable, that's still learning, that'll, that will react to events as the campaign plays out. So uh, polls are definitely getting better. Um, and the, believe it or not, the error in the polls has also reduced over time. 2016, at the national level, was very accurate. Uh, it was a few state polls, especially in places like Wisconsin, Michigan, Minnesota, where they were off. I think you um, kind of hit on it, but with the resulting combination of polarization and the uh, Trump's response to the COVID-19 pandemic, um, and now that that has become a partisan issue, how do you think that that will uh, impact the race or how the potential progression of COVID-19 um, or with the economy, like how do, how do you think those things will kind of play together and play out um, in the election this fall? This is probably the biggest unknown and most important question about the 2020 election. We have never been in a presidential election setting with a pandemic, public health, and economic crisis dominating all aspects of our lives. And a president running for re-election who will either be rewarded or blamed for how it, how it comes out. We don't know whether there will still be lockdowns and stay-at-home orders in the fall, whether there could be a resurgence of the spread of the virus, whether the economy will have recovered a little bit or a lot or not at all. Um, so it's, it's just very hard to say. 
if it were economic numbers alone that drove the election, and, and they tend to be very good predictors in previous years, uh, Trump would be in huge trouble. This, this is the worst economy that any incumbent will be presiding over since probably Herbert Hoover in the Depression. You know, there are scary projections for what the second quarter of the year might be in terms of economic growth. Could be negative 20% or negative 30% growth. Uh, the unemployment figures are just astounding in terms of the number of people applying or who have given up looking for work. Uh, and those things aren't going to go right away, you know, evaporate or recover right away. I, I think what's most unclear is how much the public is going to hold President Trump accountable for all of those bad things. If they view him as being uh, unprepared or incompetent at handling the virus when it appeared, or not managing it well uh, once it became a serious problem, and so contributing to the negative impact, uh, then he's in deep trouble. And it doesn't take a lot of movement in the polls to take the election from being pretty close in the Electoral College to really shifting four or five states and creating a pretty big win for Biden. But if voters are willing to give Trump a pass and they blame the Chinese or the CDC or businesses or hospitals or whoever it is, the media, um, for the problems, and I think a lot of Republicans will give Trump a pass, but if it goes beyond the Republican base, um, then it might be that the virus doesn't have the big impact we all would expect it to have as being the dominating issue. It is surprising in surveys just this week, the public was asked how important the virus would be to their vote in the fall and how important the economy would be to their vote in the fall. And the public gave more weight to the economy than to the virus itself. And that was true across party lines. So it's, it's sort of strange, I guess, that the public at least a large share of the public is viewing the pandemic as kind of being orthogonal to what's going on in party politics. And it's just, you know, a, a, a nuisance or, a, or, or a, a severe problem that's kind of outside of what's going on between Trump and Biden, potentially. Kind of wrapping up our talk about the election cycle right now, what are some things that listeners should keep in mind some final thoughts of yours that people should keep in mind as they are consuming news, as they are making choices about who they should vote for. Uh, what are just some things that you recommend people keep in mind? <laughs> Tough question. Ad advice I would give would include consuming high quality news sources. There's a lot of information out there, but a lot of it is poorly sourced or comes from unknown uh, points of origination, especially if it's come through on social media, it tends to be kind of clickbaity and and attractive because it's easy to glom onto things that are supportive of your views. But to the degree you can consume the news without being depressed or overwhelmed or stressed by it, and, you know, just paying some regular attention to the facts on the ground is really helpful. Um, that's probably the number one piece of advice I would give. I, you know, it lets us have a serious national conversation. If we can stipulate some facts in advance and we can trust some sources of authority, whether they're public health authorities or they're journalists or whomever, you know, we believe some things in common, then we can have a real conversation about whether the people who are in office deserve to stay there um, or they ought to be kicked out and replaced with somebody who could do a better job or has a different vision for how the country ought to proceed. It, it sometimes feels kind of trivial to be thinking about elections and party politics at a time when so many people are suffering 
from the pandemic, but it is public life that solves or at least addresses these very difficult problems. It's the place where these things get coordinated and handled. You know, businesses have a role to play, but they can't solve it on their own. Educational institutions have a role to play. They can't do it on their own. There is a public sphere where this stuff gets handled. So I, I would encourage people, as depressing and painful as it can sometimes be, to stay engaged with public affairs and, and try to stay on top of the facts so that you can be an informed participant. We've been asking professors um, and getting a lot of this and getting a lot of great advice. How do you advise students, especially seniors, on hanging in there, staying positive, especially those thinking about the job market or grad school um, for people who aren't getting the traditional graduation experience? What words of wisdom do you have? Oh, I wish I had words of wisdom. I feel so sorry for our students and especially our seniors uh, who are being deprived of the full college experience at UW-Madison. It's, it's just a sad situation. Uh, I will say I've been really impressed by the resilience our students have shown. They, they have stayed engaged with courses as they've been pushed online, uh, you know, in a, in a way that none of us would have designed from the outset. It just had to happen. And the students have stuck with us and really appreciate that. I think that's a good sign as to what our students are going to be able to do when they leave the university. Navigating this is going to make us all stronger, more flexible, more innovative, and uh, it will be a challenge. I've talked to students who are graduating who have told me about jobs and internships that were dangled in front of them and have now been taken away. It's a, it's a really sad situation. Um, if there is an upside, I think it's that our graduates get to be part of the generation that's going to build the new version of society that exists after the pandemic. What will government and business and entertainment and education look like? It's going to be different in some important ways. And the young people leaving the university get to be part of creating that new thing, whatever it is. So I, I really hope our students can appreciate and draw on the skills and knowledge they've developed at the university and, and be part of doing all that in a really productive fashion. It's not an easy task. Um, but it is kind of an honor, maybe, to be part of that new wave of thinking. Great. Professor Burden, thank you so much um, for joining us on the podcast again today, and also just a deeply heartfelt thank you for joining us on the podcast for the semester. Um, you've helped us grow and develop and have been a fan favorite in the classroom and on 1050 Bascom. So thank you for today um, and the many times in the past, and we're sure to have an eventful summer, and we'll check back in with you uh, in August. Well, thanks for having me back and for persevering to keep the podcast going. Uh, <laughs> during the pandemic, podcasts have become really important for a lot of people. And so I appreciate that this is one lifeline that stayed in place. For more information regarding the podcast, please visit polisci.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. For more information on the university's policies and responses to the pandemic, please visit covid19.wisc.edu. You can find more episodes on all streaming platforms. And if you enjoyed this episode, please rate, follow, and subscribe. Thanks for listening to 1050 Bascom COVID-19. Stay safe and take care of each other.